0: Should we go electric?
1: I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options.
0: So electrified looks different for everyone.
1: Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.
0: Remember Oscars So White? With films like Crazy Rich Asians, Black Klansmen, and Sorry to Bother You now in theaters, Hollywood is ready to claim victory on its struggles with diversity. <laughs> Not so fast. Is more of America being represented on screen? Or just being depicted? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, Executive Editor of The Atlantic. With me here in D.C. is Jillian White, Atlantic Senior Editor. Hello, Jillian.
1: Hello. So good to see you.
0: So good to see you, too. Over in New York, we are joined for the first time, I believe, on Radio Atlantic (laughs) by our colleague, Hannah Georgia, staff writer at The Atlantic. Hannah, welcome to the table.
1: Hi, y'all. Thanks for having me. Hannah, this is not your first time. This is incredible.
0: It, it, are, do you <laughs> feel is. historic? Do you feel like I'm, you're a part of history? Wow, right I'm now? just
1: honored to yeah, be I here Yeah, got to write this
2: down. Thanks, y'all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, you cover culture for The Atlantic, and you have been thinking big thoughts about culture recently. What do you want to talk about today?
2: Well... Matt. <laughs> um, I've been thinking a lot about what happens once we go beyond the sort of basic level one, does diversity matter question? And we get into the sort of nitty gritty um, and the, you know, the 102, if you will. Um, so what that kind of stuff.
0: Has, what has brought this up for you? Why are you thinking these thoughts?
2: Why are you asking um, this question? <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think about this stuff a lot in general, right? Um, I write about a lot of culture stuff, and in particular, I care a lot about the work that people of color are producing and are asking for. Um, but I think lately, as I've seen, I saw sort of in pretty quick succession, Debbie Diggs and Raphael Casals' Spotting," um, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and then Issa Rae's Insecure Came Back. So we have all these sort of really... Um, exciting and nuanced and rich um, works coming from people of color with entirely different voices and ideas. Um, so I you know I want to get into that.
0: Excellent. So yes, I mean that catalog that you just listed, it sounds like there's a lot of diversity diversity <laughs> happening. It's like we're we're eons away from Oscar's so white. <laughs> <laughs> so diversity problems solved, right?
2: Ah, I wish.
0: (laughs) 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 So you have been um, writing about um, what you are and aren't seeing in these depictions, and tell me a little bit about uh, what comes after, what comes beyond diversity in this conversation.
2: Right. So you know, I've always been particularly interested in intra-community conversations. Right. So what happens when we're talking not just as Black people, people of color, to or about ourselves in front of white people or with the idea that we need to impress them or say that our stories belong here, here's the case for us. But what happens when we're talking to each other? Um, Mm. And how do we relate to one another? How do we um, assert a sense of belonging with each other? Or, you know, how do we say somebody is doing something that says it's for me, but it's not? Um, So a lot of that has been coming up, I think, as we talk about you know, I watched Black Klansmen and it was a little hard for me because I emerged from that theater thinking this was really intense mm. and I don't feel better um, than I did walking in. <laughs> Not that I expected to, but it, it felt um, a little explainer-y, a little racism has existed, racism continues to exist. By the way, did you know Charlottesville happened? <laughs> um, <laughs> in a way that to me um, felt like you know, it would have been more necessary or useful for white moviegoers. Right.
1: I mean, and Hannah, we've talked about this before. I think it brings up the question, as you said, when we see these movies, these films, of who is all of this for? Um, Who is this supposedly talking to versus, I think, especially in the case of Black Klansmen, who are the people who are actually going to see these? And does the messaging actually match and reach the audience?
0: Yeah. Um, Black Klansman is an interesting case. Um, <laughs> I felt like I, I emerged from the movie um, uh Having the thought, I wish that racism actually just was just <laughs> like this all the time. That, <laughs> that that would be useful. All the races just wore pointy-headed hats, and were right? Like, <laughs> self-evidently evil,
2: right? And easy yeah. to spot. Yes, right.
0: Yeah. And, and they you didn't know, have more of a motivation than just to be racist, right? Yeah. Right,
2: right. Um, and you know, that movie has these sort of funny moments where. You know, Topher Grace as David Duke does the kind of like, I wish we had a president who would abide by these policies. And I wish that he would want to make America, you know, have its greatness again. And it's very sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, And that felt a little, you know, heavy, a little intense for me right now in this particular political climate to be reminded once more. (laughs) But Black Klansman
0: was a movie that a lot of people liked. Yes. Um, a lot of people found it useful. A lot of critics found it useful. As yeah. we speak, the movie Black Cleansman has an 82 on Metacritic, um, mm-hmm. which is a uh, movie review aggregation site that uh, combines scores from different movies and kind of comes up with an Uber score based on how critics have rated it. An 82 out of 100. Uh, what do you think that that reflects?
2: I think it's timely. Um, you know, I wouldn't even go so far as to say I don't like it. Um, I wish that it were shorter and that the sort of ending characteristic Spike Lee montage of current events um, that the movie is clearly inspired by, that that segment ended or didn't exist. But I think that it's, there are moments when it's really fun and funny. Adam Driver gives a particularly great um, performance, and, you know, John David Washington is is fun to watch. And there are things about it that especially thinking about some of Spike Lee's more recent works make it um, a welcome <laughs> addition to his repertoire.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think I would agree with all of that. Uh, but you have mentioned you are interested in the intra-community conversation. As we talk about a movie like Black Klansman, I'm curious, who do you think that that movie was for?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's for... You know, I think Spike Lee would probably say it's for everybody, (laughs) Um, but I think it it probably is most effective for either your sort of moderate white person who, you know, understands objectively that racism is evil and bad, um, but sort of doesn't understand the ways in which it has inspired terror historically and sort of in this contemporary moment. And I think for black folks who want um, a jumping off point to talk to each other about certain things. So I think it raises really interesting questions about, you know, does having more black police officers help solve the problem of American policing? Um, It raises interesting questions around what does community loyalty look like? What does it mean to you know, to hold each other down, to establish power with one another. And again, like, this is the thing that, you know, we were talking about earlier. What does it mean for Ron Stallworth, who John David Washington plays, as a black police officer who pretends to be white over the phone um, and joins the Klan? What does it mean to be able to play around with race in these ways, to sound white, to act white? Um, And I think, you know, if we as a community, as, as black people, if we come together and talk about those things, I think it's useful. Um, but as far as getting the message of racism existing across to us, I don't know that we needed that. Mm.
1: I wonder if it's also so popular because there is a segment of the population who just wants the bluntness, who wants to be kind right. of hit over the head with, you know, the fact that this is what's happening and I feel that it's bad. And... I just want somebody to say that over and over and over again. And there's right. a form of catharsis in that. Um, right. And I do wonder if that's part of the reason why it's so appealing. I do think there's a not super small segment of the population that is frustrated with kind of the level of nuance and care um, that is being taken now to discuss issues of race and politics. And they just want, in their mind, to call a spade a spade. And right. for them, Spike Lee does that mm. right
2: right
0: um hannah i wanted to touch on to go back to um some of the other works that you mentioned sorry to bother you insecure with isa um blind spotting um you have recently written about the sounds that we hear um all of these works um center on the experiences of black characters and um you uh you wrote a piece for the atlantic.com
2: that I did (laughs)
0: Um, about the sound of the black universe that's depicted in each one of these works Um, tell us a little bit about what you found in this cinematic corner
2: yeah yeah definitely Um, you know it's funny talking about this like literally talking um, as (laughs) someone who, (laughs) you know, shares a similar background with Issa Rae in that I'm, you know, a young black woman who grew up in Southern California with like a black immigrant family for whom English wasn't the first language, right? So my first, um, my own personal first uh, interactions with English were often with white people or with other folks kind of trying to make sense of what it means to sound American. Um, And so I was thinking a lot about that as I wrote, but I think one of the criticisms that the show has gotten is that when, in particular, Issa says certain words like the N-word or certain phrases associated with, you know, sort of black American speech patterns, that it doesn't sound right or it sounds off. Um, And that's a really hard thing to quantify. Um, And it's also, you know, it's tough that that show has sort of been saddled with the burden of representing so much of blackness because we don't have as many, um, you know, we don't have as many examples of what it means for a character to be black and young and in America because those kinds of works just don't get greenlit as often.
0: Honey, you mentioned a particular moment in the show *Insecure*. Um, uh, you're describing a conversation between two characters in the show, Issa Rae, um, the creator, and Molly, her friend, who we're going to hear from first. Let's hear that clip. Okay. so now, I don't need your side eyes. Front eyes. Let me mm-hmm. tell you right now, this whole vacation put everything in perspective for me. I'm on some next level shit. I'm listening. Okay, so like Vacation Bay was trying to kick it with me in LA, and I had to put him in his lane. Bloop, you beat your dick. Quentin was trying to do some long distance shit, and I said, blip, stay in Chicago. And my new job was trying to fund my benefits, and I said, blam, you better give up bitch a BBO. So you bloop it and blip it and blap it? And blam and bitch.
2: I'm on some no better, do better shit. That's dope. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, Hana. Black explain this to me. <laughs> what sounded off about that clip to some listeners? Uh, Viewers, you know, I should say. Because not everybody <laughs> wants this on a podcast. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Um, I think one of the things that people have pointed to is the way that, you know, vowels are elongated or, you know, you hear like the blamin' like this an almost like nasally quality, um, that we tend to associate with sort of white vocal patterns. Um, just little things like that that sort of clue you into the fact that maybe this is a stretch for this person vocally because it's not something that was in their kind of, you know, repertoire growing up. Um, and, that, you know, acting is acting, right? Like mm-hmm. all actors are embodying something that is outside themselves. Um, but it's interesting to think about how fluid language is and, you know, sometimes is not as it concerns um, blackness.
0: Yeah. Do you think – I'm curious, Jillian. Um, when you hear that critique of a moment like that in a show, is it just that it's not, maybe the acting wasn't that effective? Um, uh, and uh, if so, like there are a lot of cases where things might not be acted as well as we want them. Um, why do you think that that, um, why does it matter?
1: I mean, I think it matters because as we get movies, shows, films where, people who have not traditionally seen themselves represented are finally kind of coming to the forefront um, and receiving critical acclaim and mass audiences. I think that they just want to feel adequately and accurately represented. Um, So I think that in an instance like that, where this, as Hannah said, kind of unfairly has to represent for So many black women, their experience, the way they talk, the way they feel, the way they dress, the music they listen to, the way they dance, their interpersonal relationships, any hint that that might not be all the way correct or completely correct, I think people feel a need to seize upon. I think one of the things that I find especially interesting about um, this conversation as related to voice um, and to vernacular and all of those things is that this is one of those areas where nuance within a community that Hanna has been talking about this whole time is so important, right? So if I, as a Black person with a West Indian background from the East Coast, had heard some of my West Coast friends talking when I first got to college, I would have thought that's not necessarily how Black people I know sound. Mm. It would have sounded odd to me, and it did, and vice versa. So I think there's, in some ways, a little bit of that where we both want the nuance, but we also want everything to relate directly to us because people have been waiting so long to right. see representation of themselves.
0: Yeah. I'm curious from, from both of you, I imagine a lot of listeners who are not listening to a clip like that or watching a movie like Black Klansmen from inside the communities being depicted on screen um, they're like this is this feels accurate. <laughs> I don't know. This is this seems authentic. Um, how do you think a viewer or a listener who um, who might perceive something as authentic? How do you approach a work like Black Klansmen Are Insecure if you aren't um, a Black women who grew up in Southern California in an immigrant household and be attuned to the fact that you may be seeing something that's, that's a partial representation of this experience or um, perhaps even um, a slightly off-kilter one.
1: Um, I, I mean, I think this is one of those things that, I mean, being specific, white audiences are going to have to learn in the same way that black audiences and Hispanic audiences and Asian audiences and queer audiences have had to do for basically their entire lives, right? Look at something that is from a background that's completely different than yours and try to parse it and figure it out. And I think part of the reason that, for instance, people of color understand the nuances of white America or, you know, feel that they do is in part because that culture has been represented so broadly and in so many different ways and in so many different capacities and with so much nuance and so much detail that if you're a person of color in America, you can say, oh, this is, you know, a particular type of speech that comes from a particular, you know, segment of the country right. where a particular type of white person lives or something like that.
2: Right.
1: We have never had our stories told in broad scope um, and the numbers still just aren't out there. So I think until there is a real or a greater saturation of work from people of color, you know, I think it's going to be hard for anyone who's outside that community to really be able to parse kind of those nuances.
2: Right. And I think, you know, remembering that not – there's no single story, right? So, like, Insecure is a specific story about some specific characters in a specific part of the country going through specific things, right? And that not every black woman you see or encounter has had a moment like something Issa or Molly has had. And, like, maybe there are moments that they can relate to, sure – but that you know, black creators or creators of color shouldn't have to speak for their entire communities. They should just be able to create art. And I think the more we move away from the burden of doing explanatory or like almost anthropological art in addition to just telling stories, um, that'll sort of move all of this along.
0: Part of what I'm hearing in what both of you are saying is this idea that uh, that pure diversity or sheer diversity, um, without a level of authenticity risks becoming just tokenism. Um, that to uh, it, it is there is this whole other level that r- enriches the art potentially for everyone who comes to it of really just faithfully capturing an experience. and that um that the level beyond diversity in part is getting there,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's in part when you look back at things that, um, have been so beloved of late. When you look at Moonlight, for instance, just the amount of nuance and detail—how, in a way, small that story was—of right, right. you know one man from one neighborhood dealing with you know coming to terms with the fact that he was gay and dealing with all of the external factors. There, it just felt so much more authentic and important and powerful. Um, And I think something like that now has the ability to resonate and reach a broad audience in a way that it didn't, you know, five, 10 years ago.
2: Right, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, again, what the sort of luxury of individuality is what, you know, people of color, marginalized folks in this country haven't had as as people um, and also in our art. And so the more we kind of move toward that, I think it also answers a lot of you know, concerns around the way that the work and the narratives um, of movies or TV shows work. I think about a specific moment in Insecure last season when Issa's character has an issue with a particular intimate act, um, and it really didn't resonate for a lot of viewers. Mm. And I think the reason that felt off in that moment was that the show tried to make it a larger point about black women and sexuality Whereas it could have just been a hangup that Issa, the character, had, and that would have worked. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The challenge that you all are talking about is one that's sort of—it It cuts across all of art, right? Like the, the essential elemental challenge of art is trying to find the universal and the particular in the specific. Right. The more particular, the more specific the experience being depicted, uh, the more resonant that is across a range of experiences that it touches on— uh, the, the richer the work can feel. That's one yeah, of the right. things about Moonlight. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think I can watch a movie like Call Me By Your Name, yeah. which features a uh, a romance by people with a lifestyle that I can't even quite fathom. <laughs> being able to just, like, summer in Italy to, yeah. like, you know, find ancient archaeological artifacts in right. the, like, beautiful Capri
2: waters or whatever. Um, right. A girl can dream. <laughs> <laughs> a
0: girl can dream. Um and um, find pieces of myself in that. Right. And that's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. I want to ask you about another um, upcoming work um, that kind of poses a different question. Crazy Rich Asians. Um, yeah. This is a movie uh, that I have not yet seen. Um, but depicts a very, very, very particular um, slice of socioeconomic right. experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and I should say, this is a movie that's getting a lot of acclaim and a lot of love from a lot of my friends. That uh, and our film critic David Sims has an all-star cast: Constance Wu, Aquafina. It. Is And I should add that it's not through the lens of the 1%, but is depicting this very particular socioeconomic slice of life. How should we think about a movie that isn't even purporting to depict the entirety of a community's experience, but is focused on one very particular slice?
2: Right. Yeah, I think, you know, some of the discourse, for lack of a better word, around it has been about whether the film can or does do that. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's an unfair burden, right? Like, I think that movies, and you know, TV shows are at their core art, which gives us an opportunity to enjoy ourselves and to think about the world around us, and how we relate to people. And I'm excited to see it and have fun. Um, So, you know, it, it doesn't have to be Again, the be all end all just because it's the first. Um, Ideally, we would get so many more chances for people um, to show different stories.
0: Yeah. One of the things that's really made the conversation about diversity, particularly in Hollywood, uh, a big matter of discussion uh, was the Oscars So White campaign and. And now um, we've recently heard the news that the uh, the Oscars, the Academy <laughs> Awards are um, are adding a category of popular <sighs> films. Um, and that that, as I understand <laughs> it, is Oscar's effort to represent a broader universe of film but it's drawn a lot of sure. criticism <laughs>
2: right ha- hana why, why?
1: <laughs> yes I, why hana right i don't know <laughs> put me in
2: charge of the academy i'll answer it um, no please 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 don't do that um, <laughs> why why are people so
0: why are people so exercised about the academy's decision to add this popular film category
2: you know I think it it feels like a cop-out to a lot of people, right? It feels like preempting a loss in the categories that quote-unquote matter, right? So it's a, you know, we're probably not going to give you best picture again the way that we did with Moonlight, and even that was kind of a flub, but here, take this kind of token award that we'll offer you instead. So don't get too riled up again. We can't deal with that anymore. And that's frustrating, right, to feel like your concerns are kind of going and being heard, yes, but not being acted upon in a way that feels meaningful. Um, And, you know, I was saying, you know, we're talking about this earlier, but the Academy Awards and awards in general have really big impacts on, you know, individual actors and directors' careers, but also what kind of works come from that and what kind of things we see in the future? Um, so it's a little it's, it's disappointing on that end. Yeah.
1: I just also feel like part of the problem here is that Oscar So White and a lot of the upheaval about diversity um, in who was getting Academy Awards was meant to say to the Academy, you guys are deeply out of touch. You're out of right. touch with. The art that people think matters, with the art that is resonating with people, with the actors and directors and producers who are doing groundbreaking work, you're out of touch with a changing demographic of the country. And (laughs) For the response to that to be like, cool, cool, cool. We totally get that. So what we're going to do is instead of giving you these prestigious awards, we're going to create this other subsection that says that you're popular but not artistic enough. Not good enough in our eyes. But I don't know. Americans who are cultural Neanderthals seem to think that you're great. So they went to see it en masse. (laughs) So, yeah, cool. We'll give you this award. That does not solve the problem. It also, I think, implies this idea that popular and artistically brilliant are sometimes or are often divorced. And that's not true. A lot of the movies that are nominated for Best Film do really, really well in the box office. So it's, right. it's also like, why, why do we actually need to separate these things?
2: Right. And I think we see that with music too, right? There's a sort of derision with which people talk about pop music as though to be, you know, a top 40 song is one, an easy thing to just stumble into. Um, and two, partly because those kinds of music are associated most often with, you know, women, people of color, et cetera. It just feels like this really obvious sort of who do you think you're fooling with this kind of thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, does... What if... I, I mean, we don't know how this category will play out in practice, right? Um, Right. What if Black Panther (laughs) and the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe gets the best picture? Um, And popular film is where... Uh, you know, the, the Furious franchise finds it.
1: <laughs> I know a Oscar lot of people presence. will be thrilled if the Furious franchise finally, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> finally right. receive their due. Yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> but and, and do you think that that's possible? Are we presuming a lot to assume that the popular film category is uh, is a cons- consolation prize for mm. films that are blockbusters?
2: I, I mean, don't think we've... Go ahead, Julian.
1: I was going to say, I mean, to a certain extent, of course, we're presuming, you know, we do not have this crystal ball we can't see into the future. Um,
0: right. My favorite part about the, asking this question is, is hearing the sigh in both of your voices <laughs> 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 when the question is asked. Yeah,
1: it, right. it just does. I think also you have to kind of look at the track record here. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and the track record a little bit suggests that this is going to be a repository for things that are beloved and incredibly popular and that the Academy knows that they'll be screamed at if they don't give some recognition to, but that they don't deem artistically significant enough to include in kind of their existing framework for what makes a best picture film. But I think part of the problem there is that the whole idea was you need to rework your framework. Right. That was the ask. The ask isn't to create an additional field it was to rethink the way that you're evaluating things
0: yeah the grammys i understand have also gone through some similar contortions um, right and have been criticized for um, uh, um choosing albums and artists that they can honor um in order to avoid controversy over diversity
2: right right in their selections right. um like what is that category like best urban contemporary like what does that mean (laughs) what does that mean what does that mean aside from best album made by a black person right like there's no there's no sort of grounding (laughs) unified cohesive musical you know um factor that brings them together it's literally just the color of who makes it um but yeah i mean i agree with everything that jillian said like obviously we can't know definitively but this is when we're talking about the Academy, we're talking about an organization that has historically refused to even watch films made by black people. They didn't watch, what was it Girls Trip, I think, which was like a massive blockbuster hit and also right. like an incredibly well-done film. So I don't know that, that they've necessarily inspired hope or goodwill <laughs> thus far. <laughs>
0: uh, Hannah, the title of, of your piece for the site the other day was, What Does It Mean to Sound Black?, Um, What does it (laughs) mean to sound like? What was your conclusion? What's the answer to that question?
2: It's complicated. Um, (laughs) That's generally the answer that I arrive at. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that we can point to... So I spoke with Professor John McCorder, who has written for the site before, Um, but a little bit about you know what are the speech patterns what are again the sort of phonation the syntax what are those kinds of things that on a really like linguistic level we associate with blackness and then how much of it is you know the ability to participate in certain kinds of shared cultural jokes how much of it is you know slang how much of it is knowing what beat to hit in a conversation um mm. and i think it it really depends the you know the the to bring it to the insecure example again, I don't think the problem that people have is that Issa Rae or Yvonne Orji, um, who plays Molly, don't sound black at all or that they don't sound black enough necessarily. It's that when we're when only certain kinds of black people are allowed in the room with, let's say, like Hollywood executives, it affects the kind of art that we get. So if somebody who sounds more quote-unquote natural saying some of those words um were to walk in a room with HBO, would HBO take them seriously enough to give them a show where they could say those words freely um, and in a voice uh, that sounds, you know less acculturated to whiteness? Yeah. And I think that's a complicated question. It's not just about um, authenticity, it's about access. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, John McWhorter, you, who you mentioned, uh, also recently wrote for our site about um, a poem by um, a white author this is relevant, um, that was published in The, <laughs> published in the Nation. Um, that poem drew a lot of criticism. It was a poem by um, Anders Carlson Wee. Um, and it drew a lot of criticism because it was written in black English, black vernacular English. Some folks had criticized the authenticity of the English. John McWhorter stepped in as a linguist to say <laughs> that, in fact, it is uh, it is textbook accurate. Um, black vernacular English. Um, I want to ask um, on behalf of the folks who are listening to this and saying, you know, oh man, first y'all made me to worry about diversity, <laughs> and, and now, now that we've we've gotten more representations of these different communities and experiences on screen, now I got to worry about is it authentic enough? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean... <laughs> Hannah, give us give us a closing word for the audiences that are
0: coming to the table um, with that.
2: Yeah. I think one of the ways that we think about stuff like this is are authors, are poets, are um, TV show creators, are they allowed to write in this voice or are they allowed to be this kind of person? And I feel like that's not necessarily the most fruitful question. I think, you know, it's better to think about it in the sense of are you doing this justice And sometimes the answer is by virtue of who you are, you can't. And sometimes it's just that you need to do your research more. And sometimes it's that you could do it justice, but maybe someone else would be better. Um, And so I think it's not, it isn't, you know, for lack of better words, it isn't a black or white thing necessarily. But it's often that in the case of that poem, did he need to employ that voice to get across the point he wanted to? Was he the best poet to tell this specific story? And often, even if the question of someone being allowed to do something um. Even if that answer is yes, the sort of secondary questions might be no, or might be wait, or might be, you know, access a different part of yourself that you know better. Um, and that feels like a more g- generative place to begin, rather than thinking about it as a restriction.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, I th- I think Hannah's point of is it necessary <laughs> to use. This particular voice, which is not your own, um, in order to get across the same point, um, really, really resonates here. What what was the utility of doing that? What was the necessity of doing that? And if there is none, if there was another way to construct that, then it begs the question of why, why, <laughs> why did you have to embody, um, you know, a black person or a black vernacular in order to get that across. um, And was it necessary to kind of, or was it, you know, just a provocative thing? I think another thing that a lot of people felt about that was that um, it was stereotyping. And I just want to quote this portion from what um, McWhorter wrote, which was, the idea that non-black people seeing black people depicted as using their own speech form will think that's the only way black people can talk corresponds better to another time than our own. It assigns a rather brutalist naivete to people who, albeit hardly devoid of subtle racist biases, have come a long way from Jim Crow. Progress happens slowly, but it happens. And I think the level to which people might have been offended or took issue largely hinges on how they feel about that graph. Um, right. mm. So if you feel like this concern that somebody, a white person in particular, reading that will think, well, yeah, that's how black people talk, most of them, at least. If you think that most white people would feel that, then I think there's a lot of reason for you to feel offended or upset by that. Um, McWhorter doesn't seem to think that. And I, but I think a lot of Americans would fear playing into those stereotypes.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you for that. There's a lot that you've both given us <laughs> to think about uh, today. In a moment, we're going to turn to our closing segment, Keepers. Stick around. And we're back, and let us turn to Keepers, in which I ask our guests and you, our listeners, the question what have you heard, watched, listened to? read, experienced recently that you do not want to forget. I want to begin with a keeper by someone who has been mentioned in this conversation, John McWhorter. We caught up with him um, the other day and asked him the keeper question. And here's what he said.
3: You know what I have experienced that I don't want to forget? I want to not forget that in our era, speech and podcasting, therefore, And YouTube are the primary way of communicating with especially young people and also even oldest people and that is a seismic change for me because I have always thought of myself as a writer I'm used to being able to tame and control print and I've learned over especially the past year that that puts me behind and that to talk is not as ephemeral as I generally think of it. To me, when I say something, I figure it's gone as soon as I say it, and I didn't get to plan it, and so it didn't really count. Wait till I write it. I've realized over the past year that that doesn't work. You've really put it out there when you've said it, and if you write it, that's a calling card for the people out there who still don't listen to podcasts or watch YouTube. That is a major adjustment for me. I have to tell myself every week not to forget that it matters to talk,
0: it matters to talk," says the linguist who writes. Right. <laughs> Julie White, what you want to keep?
1: I would like to keep and hold on to the joy that viral dance challenges bring.
0: Tell us yes. more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, anyone who has the internet or a radio or anything else probably heard Drake's um, "In My Feelings" and. <laughs> Anyone who watches music videos or, again, is on the internet has probably seen the many versions of this very, very silly dance, perhaps culminating in Will Smith. Uh, <laughs> Will Smith uh, is a
0: master of the form.
1: Right. So, I don't know. I was at uh, my best friend's wedding over uh, last weekend, and the song came on, and People of all ages started doing it. Um, We were doing it the night before. (laughs) You know, I just feel like it's one of those rare things in this moment that can really um, bring people together. And it's just unbridled joy and fun and silliness. Um, And the dances are never all that good or people are never all that good at them. Um, And you don't have to be. Um, So I find that just thrilling and great. And I want to hold on to
0: those. Delightful. Yes. Hannah. What
2: you want to mm. keep? Um, oh, so much, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've been listening to um Nicki Minaj's album, which just came out last weekend. But I think before that, I spent a lot of time listening to some younger female rappers, um, Megan The Stallion, who's from Houston, and Rico Nasty, who's from Maryland, in particular, and the sort of brash boisterous incredibly cocky raps from them Mm -hmm. are just have like propelled me on days when i thought i would just need to stay in bed because the weather was horrible (laughs) or whatever it was um and there's this sort of like again like confidence and cockiness and just like i'm the best at what i'm doing if you haven't caught on it's your fault what are you doing like Mm -hmm. get with it or get lost um vibe that i think is just so fun um and so i think Particularly nice um, in moments when, you know, I live in New York and I walk down the street, especially in the spring or the summer when the weather is nice and it's just, you know, men and street harassment and it's so much and feeling, I think, really vulnerable and fragile in public spaces can be hard. But listening to them kind of in my headphones um, as I'm walking down the street is just a reminder that like, okay, the street is mine too. Um, and this space is mine too, and I'm allowed to take up that space and to do with my body what I choose. Um, and it feels like a kind of basic reminder, but having it in their in their words, um, and with their delivery, is particularly great.
0: Yes, yes, Strong. yes. keeper. We are highly, re- highly recommend. We're going Tina, to Montana. drop links to yes. all of these things in the yes. show notes. I will share my keeper. Uh, I. I have had a lot of film keepers recently. Here's another film keeper. Um, I watched Magic Mike XXL for the first time. And I got to watch Channing Tatum Vogue. We've had this whole conversation (laughs) about authenticity and representation. And seeing um, straight bro actor Channing Tatum take my community's uh, gift of physical expression (laughs) to the world and just own it and delight in it glory in it on stage was delightful to watch um if you haven't seen magic mike xxl this moment happens early in the film there's a dance-off at a um at a drag performance and um and you know, uh, the first couple of competitors are not part of Magic Mike's crew, uh, but come on stage voguing. And then Channing Tatum comes on stage. A and he v- Oaks, He <laughs> brings it. He just, uh, yeah, he, he studied. It was, I mean, it's delightful among other things because of him being just an excellent dancer and seeing this as another mode of expression um, that has its own particular beauty and just honoring that uh, was absolutely fantastic to watch. I watched it thrice. I think I woke Brian (laughs) up. I think he was like (laughs) asleep. Uh, (laughs) I was like, you have to watch Channing Tatum Vogue (laughs) Um, uh, and then watch Pose then go watch Pose. Yes after you see that
1: that was good strong strong
0: <laughs> Hannah Georges we got to have you on Radio Atlantic <laughs> again thank Woo! you so much for joining thank us
2: thank you so much for having me it was real fun
0: Jillian it's a pleasure as always
2: thank you thank you thank
0: you for edifying all of us <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you next
3: week bye bye
0: That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited, as always, by Kevin Townsend. Catherine Wells is our executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Thanks to my colleagues, the inestimable Julian White and Hannah Georges for joining us, and special thanks to Kim Lau for additional support. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by the wizard John Baptiste. What is your keeper? Call us at 202-266-7600 and leave us a voicemail with your contact information and what you don't want to forget. Check us out at theatlantic.com radio. Make sure to catch the show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. May you experience the incomparable joy, as often as you can, of feeling fully and deeply seen. We'll see you next week.